0: In a surprise move, South African President Cyril Ramaphosa announced in June this year that private companies will be able to produce up to 100 megawatts of their own power without a license from the energy regulator NERSA. This is a significant increase from the 10 megawatts mooted by Minerals Resource Minister Gwede Mantashe and the existing 1 megawatt threshold. To unpack what this means for South Africa's energy transition, Investec convened a panel of experts from international precious metals mining company Sabanya Stillwater, independent power producer Peli Green Energy, and research and consulting firm Intellidex. I'm Ingrid Booth from the Investec digital content team, and in this Investec Focus Radio podcast, we share some of the best insights from the discussion that is also available in video and article form on focus.investec.com. Let's get started. One thing that all the panelists in the conversation agreed upon was that the embedded generation announcement has the potential to be a giant leap forward for South Africa. And according to Investec's head of power and infrastructure finance, Martin Mayer, renewable energy producers are raring to go.
1: This has the potential to be a game changer for the South African economy by assisting in the enablement of South Africa's energy transition and driving job creation. We currently estimate that there are renewable energy projects with a total capacity in excess of 10 gigawatts, which are shovel-ready and able to produce power in the short to medium term. These projects could be further developed and built in order to supply power to the private sector through own build or corporate PPA structures. The energy transition to renewable energy will gradually remove carbon from energy production and thus accelerate the decarbonisation of our economy.
0: According to Mayer, the latest integrated resource plan states that the cost to the South African economy for every unserved kilowatt of energy is 88 rand per kilowatt hour. He asked Peter Attard-Montalto, head of capital markets research at Intellidex, why it's taken so long to get the ball rolling on self-generation and what this opportunity means for the country.
2: There was a historic problem, I think, in terms of the way energy policy has been done, it's been very much centrally controlled. NERSA has had a very crucial role in that process, inserting itself as a uh, as a regulatory body, providing licensing decisions. We've seen that uh, coming up as as well in terms of how energy has been procured more generally through large-scale, heavily controlled rounds of renewable power. But really what brewed in the last 18 months or so was as we thought about the uh, general recovery from a period of low growth. Of course, during the years of state capture. And then through the coronavirus economic recovery plan period, there was a very, very strong push from business, one which labor actually joined uh, later in the day to see a more liberalized energy industry that could crowd in investments, could cause local industrialization and jobs growth much, much faster than is currently possible. You layer on top, of course, the climate transition requirements as well. And this does seem to be uh, a win-win all around. This really stands out because ultimately it is going to be uncontrolled. It's going to be private sector saying, this is what we want to do, this is the scale of what we can do. It starts opening up some very interesting, very large possibilities, particularly on things like hydrogen, especially where you know some of the hydrogen scenarios that have been laid out could see a doubling or a tripling of the size of the grid in the next 20, 30 years.
0: The 100 megawatt news was music to the ears of Jevon Martin, who leads the energy and decarbonisation strategy of Sabania Stillwater. He also serves as the chairperson and director of the energy-intensive user group of Southern Africa.
3: I think the primary thing that energy-intensive users previously grappled with was the need for a deviation from the integrated resource plan, and that was lifted last year. The the second sort of biggest consideration then was also the collective number of consents you uh, need in order to implement a generation project for own use, with the generation license being the tail end of that that process in itself for those companies that already attempted to apply took three to six months. So so that at the face of it, there's this opportunity to reduce your project schedule by three to six months. But I think the biggest benefit is an indication from governments that they're willing to consider private participation in the electricity supply industry and really unlock the benefits associated, ranging from closing the national supply deficits, stopping load shedding, to employment creation, local supplier development, creating a national advantage for South Africa through the leveraging of our land, wind, and solar resources.
0: While embedded generation means companies like Sabanya Stillwater can produce electricity for their own use, it also means they can sell power to others via a process referred to as wheeling. An example of this would be a solar farm run by an independent power producer in the northern Cape using the ESCOM transmission network to sell its energy to a mine in the northwest province. Mayer explains.
1: It's really important that you're able to wheel to, to sort of one too many just to enable the merchant market that, that everyone talking about. If you're just building these projects for one single user, it doesn't necessarily drive the sort of development that, you, that you're looking
0: for. While wheeling is clearly the way to get the megawatts we so desperately need onto the grid, it's still some way off, says Attard Montalto.
2: So I think the thing to really drive home is that the Schedule 2 is actually a very complicated document. The The core licensing threshold is, is almost the easy part, but the wheeling is much more complicated. And it's really where for bankability of projects, the success of projects, the building of a dynamic market that is de-risked, um, you know, we're looking for things like being able to sell to uh, electricity traders. Uh, we're looking for sort of money to money wheeling, these sorts of things. And I think the, and the, the sense that we're going so far is that we'll take a very big step down that route, but maybe some things such as the selling to traders might not be coming through at this stage. But as long as, you know, there's an ability to wheel power to more than one person necessarily to, to add in some de-risking, I think that's certainly a very, very positive step.
0: Assad Montalto also believes that the upping of the embedded generation threshold can really move the needle when it comes to growing South Africa's economy.
2: Overall, in terms of the economy, we definitely see a very large volume of, of investment coming in the in the next decade to, to back this. Uh, we're wondering about uh, shifting long-term potential growth views, if we can solve some of the energy problems, if we can make South Africa a more exciting investment destination once some of those energy constraints are solved, we can start upping long-term potential growth views from you know, currently around 1.7% a year, maybe up towards 2.5% or so on the back of uh, a reform like this. So that gives some sense of the scale of, uh, of how exciting this can be if is seen through
0: while the increased embedded generation threshold will go a long way to reducing the country's energy woes it will also create a huge impetus to drive greener energy in south africa says mayor
1: the RRP, the recent presidential announcement together with the talk of a new hydrogen economy is really pointing to a situation where we see the gradual decommissioning of 30 to 35 gigs of Eskom baseload and nuclear power over the next 20 to 25 years and the replacement thereof with at least 100 gigawatts of, of renewable energy capacity over the same period of time.
0: While in the past it was the unreliability of ESCOM Power that drove private companies to call for the ability to generate their own electricity, today it's a matter of competitive advantage, says Sabanyas martin
3: If we look at this from an industry perspective, one of the previous driving factors around considering generation for own use was mitigating some of the risks inherent with ESCOM from security of supply and cost of supply. But that dynamic is changing very quickly and probably the most pertinent or foremost motivated at the moment is actually needing to decarbonize our operations and our value chains. If we look at energy intensive companies in South Africa, their scope to emissions by relative standards is significantly higher than global peers. And when we look at our products that we produce on an intensity basis, that's a material contributor. So when we engage with the different uh, different stakeholders ranging from customers through to financiers, the key question is always around uh, how are you going to decarbonize? decarbonize your value chains? What targets are you putting in place? What actions are you taking to do that? And renewable energy is one of the primary opportunities for industry to decarbonize. And if we don't take those necessary actions and sort of drive it ourselves, ultimately we'll become irrelevant in global markets and that then risks the sustainability of our businesses. So the primary driver around own use generation is not necessarily managing energy risk anymore, it's really around sustaining competitive advantage.
0: As the world's 12th biggest source of greenhouse gases due to our reliance on coal, South Africa's need to transition to a green energy economy is crucial for exporters in particular as the EU looks to bring in the world's first carbon border tax by 2026. The plans seek to impose a CO2 tariff on polluting goods such as steel, and this could cost the country dearly, says Aton Montalto.
2: So our estimates is it could add roughly 300 million euros a year of tax onto South African goods going into the EU. In reality, though, it, it will probably mean also substitution by EU companies looking elsewhere for cleaner products, whether that's things like lower carbon intensity steel, et cetera. And, and that's also the larger impact, it's not just the, the price impact, which can obviously follow through to negative jobs impacts for South Africa if this isn't properly addressed.
0: Of course, decarbonisation is not only good for business, it's also a moral imperative as we strive to preserve the planet for future generations. Something Fumani and Tembi, co-founder of Peli Green Energy, is passionate about.
4: I think it's important to foreground climate change in this conversation. It's great that we have an opportunity to, in a sense, get around the power intermittence that we suffer as a function of load shedding in the country. But the bigger story is that we need to do our bit, particularly because we in South Africa exist in an energy intensive economy and our intensive use of energy has not been for the betterment of the planet. And so if we want to survive as a species and if we want to do our bit as South Africans, we also need to recognize that this is an opportunity for us to make inroads in terms of both the capital as well as the technological improvements that are required to avert the adverse effects of climate change.
0: With producers of an estimated 10 gigawatts of renewable energy projects chomping at the bit to get going, this should, in theory, be an excellent opportunity for the local manufacture of components for renewables. Why then has local content been noticeably absent from existing projects? Mtembi says it's all down to the planning and predictability.
4: think the opportunity historically is one that we've not really capitalized on. And, you know, to the extent that we want to industrialize the economy, we require a very high degree of coordinated planning and predictability. A manufacturer is not able to reliably deliver on demand if they don't have visible and long-term, in a sense, demand. And so the the challenge really with REAP being, you know, the large government-led program, what we saw was that the inability of the state to continue to procure her what looked like a cyclical sort of basis that had been established, then disrupted the manufacturing sector that had come about. One does need to have a long-term view in order to, to have an industrial sector emerge. So for me, I think the issues as, as it pertains to economic development holistically are really around first the intention, meaning that as, as we start to take advantage of this opportunity, we need to understand that from an intention perspective, it's not just about consuming power, but ensuring that we also sit on the producer side. That is how we create economic value for ourselves. And to do that, we need to take into account the key things that are hindrances to growth and development in our economy. The first being skills. And and that, of course, impacts our ability to create jobs. And that, of course, has a bigger impact because it starts to interact with another challenge in our economy, which is inequality. And so it's important that we sort of have this conversation. I would say not thinking solely about the economy, but recognising that the economy exists within society and therefore it's a socio-economy. And so the intention as it pertains to how we optimise and leverage this opportunity needs to take into account the fact that the socio-economy is important for the long-term sustainability
0: of the investments that we intend to make. Moving on to the mechanics of large-scale renewable plants for intensive energy users, a problem they're grappling with is the issue of storage, says Martin. After all, the sun doesn't shine at night and the wind doesn't blow all the time.
3: I think if, if we look at the value changes of the energy intensive uses in South Africa, there's a combination of electricity and then direct energy consumption. In terms of direct energy consumption being the likes of the coals, the diesels, petrols, etc., and gases, we're going to look to electrification. So a lot of the decarbonization will take place through converting those energy sources through to electricity and then deploying renewable energy. Load factor is a big concern because you need to incorporate the right energy mix in order to move to 100% renewable energy later. Given the characteristics and generation profiles of wind and solar, it doesn't necessarily get you there. So then you need to look at technology as well as market developments to increase your renewable energy penetration as part of your total mix. Industry is looking to the likes of storage, however there are a number of different competing technologies in that space. There's your traditional battery energy storage systems, there's also gravity systems as well as even mines contemplating underground pumped hydro schemes using uh, care maintenance infrastructure. So those technologies are going to compete and ultimately allow companies to do peak shaving, energy arbitrage, potentially even sell ancillary services back to the grid. But the capital costs of storage are still prohibitive to create a 24-hour solution. So in that respect, we would need to look at further developments. We need to look at the incorporation of gas at a national scale in order to reduce overall grid carbon intensity. Green hydrogen is definitely going to play a massive part in that, considering the ability to then store excess renewable energy for use later on, either through heating or power applications.
0: As discussed in a previous Investic Focus Radio podcast, the green hydrogen economy Martin mentions has the potential to play a significant role in global decarbonisation. He explains how South Africa could benefit.
3: There's a number of different predictions, but they're saying that it could be as big as $2.5 trillion by 2050 from a, a market size of about $150 billion today. That's a CAGR of 10% per annum over the next 30 years. So it's indicative that it's going to be massive and the primary role it's going to play in industrial and commercial feedstocks and heating applications. And I think where it would compete with the likes of lithium uh, batteries or let's call it general battery technology is in the mobility space specifically for applications that where we can't necessarily use battery technologies, for example, aviation, marine, long haul, trucking, et cetera. If you look at it from a South African context, there is a significant opportunity for South Africa to capitalize on. Uh, we have the land, the wind, and the solar resources, which is the primary ingredient to create low-cost green hydrogen. Seeing the, the cost of renewable energy falling would ultimately would enable it. Uh, we also have a large number of energy-intensive users in South Africa that have the resources and capabilities to set up green hydrogen businesses with the ability to in export markets.
0: When it comes to the funding of self-generation projects, Atard Montalto says that you cannot ignore ESCOM's energy transition financing.
2: But we should remember as well, we have the, the elephant in the room coming to the market increasingly in the next few years. We're going to have ESCOM raising very significant amounts of just energy transition financing, maybe of the order of 200 billion odd rand. And that becomes incredibly important, actually, that ESCOM is able to do that in the market. So much of that is going to be helping decommission ESCOM power stations, putting in a variety of things, including industrial units, including battery storage, as you mentioned, uh, Martin. But the, most of that money will really be spent actually on transmission grid strengthening to enable this, uh, this new liberalized market to better be able to uh, you know, evacuate power from places with, with uh, solar resources, et cetera, taking it to load centers, connecting in battery storage, et cetera. And I think that's the, the new sort of funding model, the new sort of grid mindset, the investment we really need to see, which will ultimately be driven a lot by this new sort of financing.
0: It's not just the big renewables projects themselves that need financing, says Mtambi, but smaller companies across the full value chain.
4: The point is that manufacturing is not the only economic opportunity that arises. There's so many services and therefore businesses that are participating along that value chain. And really, if we're thinking holistically, I'd say the challenge from a banking perspective is to also think about projects not only at the project level, but in relation to the entities that participate in that value chain. Funding those businesses, not just in terms of their participation in the project, but also as, as operating businesses, then makes it possible for those businesses to continue to create new value, add jobs and do more. And I think that's the primary constraint in our economy. We don't have enough small businesses that are growing and thriving as a function of the opportunities that arise. And so, you know, in order for this to be just, we need to be thinking about people. Obviously, that's the center, people and the planet. And I think the the funding question is, is not just about the big checks, it's about the smaller checks that enable small businesses to emerge and grow in tandem with the sector.
0: Funding of smaller companies involved in the renewables value chain should become a lot easier now that there is some certainty around self-generation, says Investex Mayor.
1: The stop-start nature of this rollout just hasn't enabled the ability for funders to get involved, for businesses to grow. And I think given certainty in the rollout of the renewables, I think this will change. Uh, I think you'll see banks that will be a lot more, I guess, it'll be easier to understand the business plan, it'll be easier to to foresee how the revenues are going to be earned, and therefore be able to bank some of those smaller businesses.
0: There are many reasons why a move to greener power makes sense in South Africa, but all panellists agree that whatever happens, it needs to drive inclusive growth. Mtembi shares her thoughts on what needs to happen to ensure a just energy transition.
4: I think, you know, in trying to respond to the transition in a just manner, a core question is really around skills development and ensuring that people who were historically either, you know, working in sectors that will be obsolete or people who in the context of our country have been unemployed, you know, for those people to participate, we, we do require a lot of coordination. So what we've seen historically with the Renewable Energy Program is that the timing of these projects has not necessarily enabled the development of skills prior to the fact. And so, you know, you find yourself having been awarded a license and because of the economics of the project and how it's structured, you're not able to invest in society until that project is operating. And because of that constraint, you're then unable to invest in the skills, particularly of local communities that ought to participate in these projects. And so I think in really bringing the just transition conversation into our discussion today, it is important to also think through the dynamics of planning and coordination because they do quite seriously impact our ability to ensure that the change that we foresee is inclusive.
0: Thank you for listening to this Investec Focus Radio podcast. Videos of this podcast are available at focus.investec.com. If you found today's discussion insightful, please take a moment to rate us and to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
4: The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendation. Investec Specialist Bank, a division of Investec Bank Limited, is a registered credit provider.